Welcome to Fire Headlines, where we discuss the hottest fire news to hit within the last two weeks. I'm your host, Inanna Hankey, and joining me today is the panel, Chief Jeff Buchanan and Chief Bob Horton, and we are so excited to have a special guest with us, Dr. Kelly Morgan. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Dr. Kelly Morgan is doing great, great, great work in Southern Nevada right now. She's been working with the North Las Vegas Fire Department for a number of years and then took on a dual role to assist Las Vegas Fire and Rescue as they try to push to the future. She's brought a whole heck of a lot of progressive thinking and just great imagination, and she really has a care for firefighters. So we're really interested to hear what her perspectives are as as we talk through and chop some cool discussion up today. Our topic today is about Narcan training for emergency responders. Bill Ames require all main first responders to carry Narcan, and this was from 13 WGME, published on March 20th of 2023. There's a push from Maine lawmakers to require all police officers, correction officers, and municipal firefighters to carry Narcan, which is used to treat people experiencing an overdose while they're on duty. According to the Maine Department of Health and Human Services, 10,110 overdoses were reported in Maine in 2022, including 716 suspected or confirmed deaths. And a few days after this article was published, Narcan was approved by the FDA for sale over the counter, which I thought was a very fitting marriage of two wonderfully progressive things for folks to be able to have access to. Um, What kind of a difference do you think this would make for firefighters on the job, Dr. Morgan? So this is this is one of my other passion projects, actually, is is really trying to relieve and remove some of the stigma around overdoses. Um, I think that it is a very easy thing to compartmentalize or to label people who suffer from either drug addiction or who maybe wanted to try something and, and say that this is a weakness, this is a judgment call, this is a problem with moral character. Um, and I think that we are really remiss when we do that, that label makes people very uneasy to feel comfortable to intervene because they're worried about, you know, why do I need to bother with somebody else's poor choices? And and I think if we can reframe the fact that people who suffer from addiction suffer from a disease, addiction is in the DSM-4 criteria, DSM-5, pick a DSM and it's in there. Um, And if we can recognize that we wouldn't treat people who have diabetes the same way, right? If you carried dextrose or you'd carried um, glucagon or insulin, like anything that would treat a sugar problem, you would say, this person has diabetes. I have an obligation to treat their low blood sugar. We don't seem to say the same thing when we say this person suffers from addiction. I should carry Narcan to help fix their potentially deadly problem. Um, And I think if, I think if we can work on doing things to reframe that stigma, we're going to have much more success. I'm 100% in favor of every person having Narcan. I'm in favor of doing very wide, robust training and helping people feel comfortable. It's no longer a medication that needs to be given IV, IM. There's no needles involved. You shove the atomizer up the nose and, you know, spray it, go to, go to town. Um, Your, your threshold should be very low. There's no side effects. Um, your side effect is when you reverse an opiate and then somebody vomits on you or gets mad, but the person's alive. So they got to be alive to get mad. 
I'm wholeheartedly behind this. And I think that this is kind of the tip of the iceberg for what you're going to see in the future. Um, there are some very, very progressive programs and, and I'm hoping that Las Vegas and, and the Southern Nevada community is going to be one of them very soon, um, where you are seeing people actually offer treatment for substance use disorders in the pre-hospital setting, in the emergency department to try and help bridge and get people the help that they need. Um, so there are some progressive places, things like Costa Contras County, um, there's areas in Camden, New Jersey, San Antonio that are giving things like um, buprofenone in the pre-hospital setting. So Narcan to me is, is the very low hanging fruit to save a life immediately and then understand that there are pieces behind it that may even provide uh, a bigger bang for your buck to be able to start to bridge people to treatment. Uh, first of all, I love your reframe. I I agree. I think that that new approach could help to defeat stigma and potentially get people to the treatment that they need. One of the things that I've seen pop up in the literature and the, the DEA is talking about it is this prevalence now of xylazine, which is a veterinary use for muscle relaxant. This is super scary stuff here where it has got such a high frequency being in a new ingredient in fentanyl. It's coming up 23% of the time. It's in 48 out of the 50 states. Here's the punchline. Narcan is going to be less effective when it's mixed with this fentanyl. How, how is this going to impact how we treat opioid addictions with this rampant ingredient that is just absolutely throwing off our whole treatment? Well, I think that you can even take fentanyl itself. I mean, fentanyl has hit the streets like wildfire. Um, people who think they're doing meth are doing fentanyl as well. Um, it, it's amazing the number of people that we're seeing that thought that they were buying meth and went to go smoke their meth, regular meth and ended up almost dying because everything is laced with fentanyl. They're seeing it, I believe, more on the East Coast um, with the xylazine. And it's you know, it is extremely hard, but I think any time at this point where fentanyl is mixed with anything, and I'm seeing it on the stimulant side as well, Narcan is taking much longer to work and it is taking much higher doses to work. Um, and, and people are getting real anxious because they're like, you know, I think a lot of us learned on heroin or, or oxy or, or something along those lines where like one milligram, two milligrams was going to do it. No problem. They were going to wake up, you know, the, the half-life of the heroin, was much shorter than, than the half-life of your Narcan. And, and you could give one, one dose and leave people. And I think that we really, especially with the xylazine, you're going to potentially have to give more. That xylazine is a very strong sedative. Um, and so you can't expect people to wake up longer. Um, I think that, that getting at least a first dose in with every first responder is probably appropriate. And then you need to kind of plan out your attack and understand that the, the opioids that are on the market and that are on the street today are often going to outlast your Narcan. So it's no longer safe just to give a dose and leave somebody um, because we are seeing, or at least I have, I have heard of cases where people give it, the person wakes up, so they don't want to go and then they get left and then they, decline again and potentially go back into that. You can see pulmonary edema. You can see pulmonary hemorrhage. Like it's a really, really scary thing. And, and that is one of those things that is going to cause death. Um, so I think we need to reframe the way we're looking at how we treat these and that we need to start encouraging that if somebody has gotten Narcan 
or especially if we have been breathing for them or somebody on the scene did CPR, regardless of how much they wake up, they really should be transported to a hospital to be observed. That needs to be a really new and big trend for the people that that we can get there. And I think we need to encourage people to to understand that, you know, there's a lot more to it these days than than just a single dose of Narcan and walk away and leave somebody. That's one of my big take-homes on the xylazine. And it's hard because there's no way to test for it. A lot of our drug screens in the ER um, are, are out of date. Um, don't test for fentanyl. I can tell you here in the Valley, like I think there's very few places that actually test for fentanyl, including my hospital system that doesn't. And this is part of how do we monitor what's what's in our communities? And then how does that, what's going on in our communities affect the way we need to reframe treatment? For me, this kind of brings up another topic that we've touched on briefly, which is the idea of community care, where if somebody's not willing to go to a hospital to receive treatment, what kinds of resources could we pull from the community to follow up with that person? You know, if somebody is a highly trained first responder and needs to be immediately saving somebody's life, providing that very expert view, is there someone who maybe has more basic training that could potentially go and make sure that this person is okay. Just something that comes to mind that probably is not in place for many places, but I think that there's does need to be more of a focus on, you know, leveraging resources that maybe don't need to be as well qualified as an EMT, for example. There, there actually are programs out there. Um, and one of the big things when you talk to some of the bridge treatment programs and and places that are trying to help get out is, is peer navigators um, is kind of the term that comes to mind. Um, and, and the peer navigators are a lot of times somebody who have suffered from addiction or continue to suffer from addiction, but have, have experienced recovery and, and understand what that looks like. And so I think that they have a very different perspective on what it looks like to be the person who's just sustained an overdose and then to be the person on the other side. And they are often your most convincing resource to help somebody figure out that there is life outside of the current addiction that they are suffering from. Um, and so the peer navigator, a lot of times um, in more robust programs is actually being added sometimes to overdose calls um, to be that person when somebody wakes up uh, to potentially give some different insight or perspective. Um, they're helping link people to care. Um, a lot of the community paramedicine programs that are that are kind of out there doing um, MAT, which is medication assisted treatment, usually for opiate use, that's things like methadone, suboxone. They're really trying to help bridge this gap of whether they got to the ER or not. How do we help people from falling through the cracks? Because the the statistics on somebody who's acutely overdosed, their risk of dying in the next 24 to 48 hours is almost 40%, which is terrifying. So if we recognize that responding to somebody who's had an acute overdose is really one of our most important and critical times in this person's life, to try and help them get get where they need to be. Um, and if we can expend some extra resources and time on that, that is a worthwhile venture in my book. No, no, I wanna I wanna talk about this at the policy level, right? Because when we get into the article, right, there's uh, the case for public safety carrying Narcan for the reasons that we've had great discussion on, which I fully support. And then there's policy on whether, you know, this is a mandate across all public safety that they that they carry Narcan. And I'll get to that in a second, because because you know, arguably who would be opposed to something like this, right? Who would be opposed to this bill? But there are there undoubtedly will be opposition. This is in the state of Maine, but this is a conversation happening across the United States. And opposition typically 
on the uh, one on the Narcan in general. And I think Dr. Morgan debunked this already, but some folks, right, say uh, it's an it's enabling. Right. This is a, we think this is enabling and economists, they refer to that as a, as a moral hazard that be as a result of us having Narcan readily available by our public safety professionals, more people feel free to overdose. Uh, I think it, uh, one, there's no evidence that I've ever seen that suggests there's any causal link between public safety carrying Narcan or Narcan being widely available and people uh, increasing their their risk to drugs. So I think that's that's nonsense too. If you lead, you know, and I believe public safety officials, fire chiefs, have a responsibility to lead with a risk reduction mindset. After all, we are typically the most trusted entity or agency within within government, and we have a responsibility to understand the risk that our community faces and and do what we can to reduce risk. This is about preventing dying. In death, and I, I couldn't have framed it better than the way Dr. Morgan did about making you know making this association to a diabetic having an acute diabetic emergency, or uh, cardiac arrest. And we have taught you know CPR to our community and AEDs for decades. We don't teach you pass judgment on the person who's in cardiac arrest and try to dissect and audit their decisions in life to that it landed them where they're at. Absolutely not. We engage as as members of a community to prevent dying and death, you know, and, and none of this, in my opinion, from a fire service perspective is matters what root cause is there. I, I, I love that we have folks that are working on that. I think what Dr. Morgan's doing in Southern Nevada needs to be replicated across the United States. The message is like, we have a responsibility to prevent dying and this policy will do that. Like this will present prevent death which gives us the the opportunity we need to introduce the other interventions that that Dr. Morgan was speaking about. The challenge that where there's other opposition, and I can understand this side of, of opposition unrelated to what I just said, is when we see policies like this at a state, it becomes an unfunded mandate for agencies, police officers, corrections officers, municipal firefighters, depending on how big your agency, that's a lot. Like that's a lot of this medication that has to go on stock that was not. Uh, that's not in the bill, I, I guess, right? It's typically not funded. And so we just, there's a, there's a mindfulness about how do we make sure this is available, that it's cost of, effective for our agencies to carry and, and move this. And those are things that fire chiefs uh, navigate on a routine basis. But I wanted to make sure I just put, put shed some light on, you know, who would be opposed to uh, legislation like this that, you know, undoubtedly carries very, very, very little risk, if any, uh, and is going to save lives. Well, I would also like to point out that if you guys remember the opioid settlements from, from the drug companies, there is money galore available for harm reduction programs. Um, and, and a lot of the public health agencies here in Southern Nevada, the Southern Nevada Health District has free Narcan kits. They have free, you know, free overdose kits. A lot of times there are programs that include clean needles condoms when you think about what it really means it's, it's bigger than narcan it's it's about overall community risk reduction and understanding just like when you have when you run into an alcoholic right you can say hey you need to get sober hey we're going to send you to aa but what are you doing to help prevent them get behind the wheel of a car what are you doing to help support their family to help them in recovery right it's it's a bigger continuum and, and so we, as agents of the public health safety net, if you will, 
have an obligation to help with overall community risk reduction. In my mind, this is part of your EMS prevention program, okay? EMS anymore in the fire service and in any of the regions is not just about pick up the phone, call 911, automatically go to a hospital, right? Back in the 80s or, or whenever the, the huge turn came about when we started putting smoke detectors and smoke alarms and sprinkler systems in buildings so that we could decrease overall morbidity and mortality from fires, you know, this is kind of that, it's kind of that part of that same process, if you will. It is how do we help people get into less trouble <laughs> overall and require less use of the 911 system, less use of the hospital system, stay healthier overall, be more productive members of society. That's what it's all about. And if you can frame it in that, then we're helping move our communities forward through efforts like this. And I, and I like to remind people that every person suffering from addiction is somebody's family member. And if you have never had somebody in your family suffer from addiction to any substance, gambling, smoking, like pick your poison, then, then you need to take a look around. Um, because a lot of the people who end up addicted to drugs maybe started because they had kidney stones, maybe started because they were in an accident and had chronic back pain, you know, and, and they became addicted to medication that has highly addictive properties. If you judge people based on that, like anybody could have ended up in a car accident. Anybody could have suffered from some sort of medical problem that was through no fault of their own and ended up addicted. I love where this conversation's going. I'm, uh, and, and I want to come back to Bob because I think that part of our responsibility for our listeners is to provide perspectives and certainly dig in a bit on the public policy piece, which is so, so impactful. And I'm not going to bring up this point to be a contrarian, but again, just to give a different vantage point to what we're talking about. And, you know, one of the things that Bob, you were talking about is an unintended consequence, an unfunded mandate. And, and I agree with you. I think that that could put a lot of pressure on uh, individual municipalities, even though I think uh, for all intents and purposes, we all agree that this is the is the right thing. The other piece of this puzzle, and I'm gonna go back the last, only last five years, we have seen significant depletions in certain medications, which has changed every single jurisdiction's ability to provide treatments. I mean, it's been saline, it's been ketamine, it's been morphine. Now across the country, we arm every man, woman, and child in public safety with Narcan. There undoubtedly will be a Narcan limitation as well. And so then the argument becomes from a policy perspective, we've armed potentially all these people for the what if scenario that might not happen in certain areas because we have all this limited supply out there and we might not have the supply available for that particular incident that we know is happening. From your standpoint, Dr. Morgan, what are your thoughts, you know, is is that even a real thing? Would there be, is there such an abundance of Narcan that that couldn't be, or am I not making any sense? Am I, am I making any sense? Yeah, you're right. We have seen drug shortages across, you know, epi, albuterol right now, atomidate, things that you would never thought we would be short on, D50 have become a major, major issue. I would garner to think that there is enough demand right now that every drug manufacturer is going to be making Narcan, knowing that there is money and funds behind it to support the drug. 
for at least the foreseeable future, I imagine that that would be the case. And it's available in different formulations, which is also helpful. So at least you have the vials, you have the intranasals. So I would, I would like to hope that that would be the case. I think a lot of people keep that medication on hand, kind of like you do an EpiPen. Now, EpiPens, you know, have been on that shortage list at one point or another, um, which is really frustrating. But, but I think that if you keep it out of people's hands or you, or you don't mandate it at this point in time, running on the, well, what if, and just in case in the future, maybe scenario, I think you do a disservice to the people who need it here and now. This is one of those times where it's not so much about planning for the future because having it available in the here and now, maybe what saves somebody's life to allow them to be present in the future. Great perspective. Oh, I think Bob wanted to address something about um, litigation as well. I, I think that Narcan falls under a Good Samaritan kind of thing. You know what I mean? This is, it's kind of like administering glucose to the hypoglycemic. This is a generally accepted practice. Your risk to somebody is almost zero. This isn't, you know, pulling somebody out of a car from a car accident. Like, I, I think that there's different levels of it. I, th I think that you are going to be hard pressed to find a lawyer who's going to litigate somebody who gave Narcan in an attempt to save a life. And especially if you want to look at it under the guise of, well, somebody OD'd intentionally and they were trying to kill themselves. Suicide in pretty much every state is still against the law. So I think you're still going to be protected. I think litigation is not going to be an issue overall because it's, it's the accepted standard of practice. And I think that I appreciate you bringing that up because I do think that's the important piece, you know, as we were starting and when we were on the early onset of, of Narcan becoming publicly available, right? The inherent reaction was, you know, what happens if something goes wrong, right? And, the, and, and I'm speaking from the public safety training perspective. Of course, EMS is already trained in the utilization of Narcan by nature of our certification, but police officers, corrections officers weren't. So those that are putting together these training programs are sort of a, a, there's this fear of what could go wrong. And, and what I want our leaders to give consideration to is, you know, you should be every bit as afraid of what could go wrong if you do nothing, right? This act of omission that somebody's in overdose and you have not prepared your officers to be prepared to intervene on that. I'd be more worried about that litigation because the expected norm today now is you're going to have your, your officers will be equipped with Narcan. 100% agree. The act of omission of a life-saving medication is much more, it's a much more litigious act than giving it, even if you don't have the response that you're expecting. Well, as I understand it with my work with first responders, community health and well-being is the root of why they do what they do, of caring for the people around them, making sure that everybody has the best possible outcomes when emergency strikes because it happens and it could happen to anybody. Thank you so much, Dr. Morgan, for joining us and for sharing your expertise. If you want to ask any questions about our podcast, you can contact us at fireheadlines at wfca.com. If you have a question, if you have insights, we would love to hear from you. Bob, Jeff, it's always a pleasure. Thank you both so much. And thank you to our listeners. And we'll catch you all next week for more Fire Headlines. Fire Headlines.